Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us Rating for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's Happy Hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Setting forth on a career in the arts is exciting, but can also be surprising in the roads we are sometimes invited to navigate. Performing careers can sometimes take us in directions unanticipated or provide essential experience that will ultimately inform the work we do. Bruce Roberts is one such example. Graduating from NIDA, his work as an actor has provided a stay in Summer Bay for three years as Nick Parrish, a role in which he was cast the day after graduation. Pantomime, Shakespeare and the musical Mamma Mia have also found their way onto Bruce's trajectory. In 2008, he made the shift to journalism and today presents nightly news for the Wynn Network. He has anchored more than 18,000 primetime news bulletins and written extensive content featured in the nightly broadcast. Bruce is an old mate and it was a joy to catch up with him once again, albeit by Zoom, but not without great nostalgia and the obligatory discussion of football. (laughs) It's a shame we can't say over. Roger. Bruce Roberts, uh, lovely to catch up with you, my old friend, and welcome to Stages. It is a pleasure to be here. I've been a big fan for a long time of you, Peter Ayers. It has been a very long time. Um, you know, it's been something like 36 years since we met. That's um, a very long time in an old church hall. An old church hall. It was too. <laughs> mystified. It was too. Um, yeah. No, I, I just, I know, I know it was community theatre, but of course it was an old church hall that we were, we were rehearsing in. Um, my Fair Lady. Yeah. So that was 1985 from memory? It was indeed for the Ballarat Light Opera Company and uh, we were in the chorus. I know, but you and I did get to open the curtain to Act 2 just before Ascot or whatever the scene it was and we were dressed up as ridiculous flunkies wearing white tights. Nothing much has changed. If I can correct you, it's because uh, I am quite an aficionado of my fair lady. It was the end of Act One, just before the Embassy Ball. I'm glad you remember. So, basically, if I do have any memory failure during this, do feel free to to fill in any blank spots. Well, I hope you don't. <laughs> now, Bruce, have I have I pulled you away from the yes. football today? Yes, you have. Um, and I guess that's looking back at 1985. That was that, uh, and has been a recurring. Um, uh, tension in my uh, artistic endeavours. Uh, I am a massive footy fan, have always been the first of, I'm the youngest of five kids, Pete, and the yeah. first ever piece of clothing that I owned, which was solely mine, was uh, an Essendon football jumper, which was just a black knitted jumper with a red ribbon stitched uh, onto it with a number eight on the back for Des Tardenham. And uh, my, you know, your listeners can't see this, but I'm holding my fingers up to the camera now. My eldest brother chopped my smallest, my little finger off on my right hand. And my auntie, Sheila, uh, when I was coming out of hospital, decided that uh, it was no good for this boy to have all these hand-me-downs. I needed to have something to lift my spirits and make me feel good. I can tell you the first funny story when... um, I was at NIDA and Kevin Jackson, who was the head of acting, uh, was uh, not that impressed that I was continuing to play footy. And uh, I was playing for you and, you know, UNSW was right next to NIDA, all members of the um, the union there. So you used to be able to get your free drinks on a Friday night if you'd had six or whatever it was. And so I played footy at UNSW and managed to get someone put a 
the stop of a rugby boot rather than an Aussie rules boot, which was quite long, into the back of my calf. And I couldn't walk nor dance for about a week because it hurt so much. <laughs> and Kevin Jackson took me into his office and he said, so you'll have this injury. I said, yes, I do, Kevin. Got a football stop in, in the back and he said, well, today is the day you decide are you an actor or a footballer? And uh, I, I guess you chose the uh, the former, not the latter. Um, I did, but it continued to get me into trouble. Um, fast forward a few years and I was on Home and Away and there was a, a, a line in your contract which stated that you couldn't play contact sport. And I went home to catch up with my brothers and we're going off to a game of footy and I thought, oh, it'll be all right. So uh, we were messing around a bit in the car park and I was considering playing and uh, my brother Pete managed to kick me in the nose and I broke my nose <laughs> and had to call um, the production coordinator from Melbourne and uh, well, we're on leave, like, but I had to call and say, look, I've broken my nose and she said, oh, how did that happen? And I just couldn't include football, sport, brothers or anything. It just happened. And that had to be written into the, the plot line uh, because I was a police officer on Home and Away that there'd been a, a fierce bash up at um, the Yabby Creek Hotel and, and I'd had to intercede. But the funniest part of it was because the externals for Home and Away were shot a week before the internals. You had continuity between week to week. And so when my nose was going to be repaired, because basically the tip of it was on one of my cheeks, um, I had to have this nose cast on for double the amount of time a usual person would because I had to have it on before the operation, the week of the operation, and then a week after for continuity. So football's always continued to play a pretty, pretty big role. So, so did Nick Parrish have a bit of a hiatus from the, uh, from the station for, for that month? No, I was, it was written into the plot line that Nick had just broken up a... Um, uh, a bit of biffo at the Yabby Creek Hotel, and we went ahead with that, and that was the explanation. Yabby Creek. Um, so with your height, I imagine you, were you a ruck? I uh, used to play ruck and also used to play forward as well. Yeah. Right. Right. So, um, yeah. so six foot so two and eyes are blue, Pete. That, that were the positions I played um, when I wasn't on the bench. Right, and how often were you on the bench and how often you were on the field? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I was a lot on the bench. But anyway, uh, the costume looked good. Mm. We're going back to the white tights now before the embassy ball? No, 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 my, my footy jersey. Uh, now, um, given a, um, an Essendon jumper when you were young, were they your first football team or were you a Swan supporter, South Melbourne? No, was never a Swan supporter until we moved up to, well, we moved to Sydney. I've now been living in Sydney environs for basically 18 years. Um, so, yeah, my heart was broken a little bit through the whole uh, drug scandal at Essendon and or alleged drug scandal at Essendon. And so as a result of that heartbreak and being just so we could go to the footy, um, my wife Rochelle is a Swans member I was Swans fan, and so we just took up membership to go to the footy, and all of a sudden I was there one day and I was cold and I bought a Swan scarf about five years ago, and then all of a sudden I started barracking for the Swans simply because we were there and there so often that it was difficult when you're living in in a town not to support the local footy side. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah I've broken a rule there. Like a, it's a lifelong rule that, hmm. We, if I see the, the the Bombers and the Swans play each other, I still just barrack for both teams. I was a Carlton man, but uh, since I've been living in Sydney, yes, it's uh, the Swans. It makes sense for the uh, to barrack for the home team. I'm glad you're not accusing me of you know being a turncoat. Thank you for that. No, no. Look, I'm sure lots of people do. Lots of people do. <laughs> now you were going to re return to the football field this year, weren't you? Oh, geez, gonna... you've got a good memory. Yeah, yeah, I but, was, and sadly, yeah, the age of what am I this year? I'm 53. Um, the season's been called off because of COVID, but I've had a few runarounds and that sort of thing. So, and I'm still on the footy committee at Fig Tree 
in uh, Wollongong. So we're doing some great things, but I'm still eyeing it off next year, running around in the thirds where all the, the old blokes go running around or the old fat blokes. I'm, I'm surprised I've gone down this route. I must remind the listener that you are listening to uh, an arts and entertainment program, not not a sports show, in case you've tuned in in the, in the middle of it. Although you can't tune in in the middle of it with a podcast. You've been listening since since the beginning. So let's talk showbiz now. <laughs> Bruce, you're presently a very respected newsreader with the Win Network of stations across Australia. It's been quite an unanticipated path. I imagine that has led you there. Yes. Yeah, so began presenting when I moved to England. Um, so when I finished up on Home and Away, it was 1994, moved to England and just through some personal relationships, ended up doing some work for both the BBC and Sky Sports uh, and fell in love with that element of, of uh, the industry. And when I came home, continued to do a little bit of that stuff, just bubbling along on the side. I'd already studied, started studying journalism at uni before I got into NIDA. So always had a penchant for it and then just decided that when it was time uh, on the back of doing the musical Mamma Mia, that uh, I wanted to move back into something that was more sustainable than acting. I think the industry that we had in Australia in the 90s there was so much going on and you could make a really great career and professional life out of it. But I think we've seen that reduce and reduce. So it was um, the mid-2000s and I thought, oh, well, I really want to actually get back into something that's regular, young family with two young girls. And so uh, I went back and finished off my undergrad degree and then I've now got a postgrad in uh, journalism as well and made the, the switch to something that is more sustainable and, you know, you get to appear on screen every day. You get to be yourself, Pete, and that's a joy. You don't have to put on funny voices or, or, or hats or fake noses. I, I, I tune in, like all of us, we tune into the news on a nightly basis. But, you know, I sometimes wonder, you know, <laughs> it should be called bad news. It's very little good news that you hear in a news bulletin. Does it become disheartening sort of being the, the, the voice of uh, the, the 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 bad stuff which is happening um, in your in your community, um, you do. There's that old expression that if it bleeds, it leads. So therefore, you do have uh, the news is is oriented towards informing people about what's going on. It's that old um, tri column from the BBC to inform, to educate, and to entertain. And I think one thing that regional news does, which is different than if it's superior, but it does differently to metro news, is we're about making sure that we tell community stories and do lift up the community, whereas Metro News is often is, you know, if you're looking at that across an hour period, you might get a couple of positive news stories, but generally it does start with the, the doom and gloom and if it uh, bleeds, it leads mantra, whereas I think we really do in community, uh, a country community, we do lift people up. We tell stories of heroes, of challenges conquered, of businesses doing well, of people who are fantastic. You know, a 13-year-old who's pulled a mum out of a car wreck um, is not going to be the story that we have just before the weather. We'll actually make sure that's uh, towards the beginning of the bulletin because we're reflecting the communities we're in and I think country people are very optimistic. Doing the news for regional centres, are, are you finding that of late there is more and more a mention of COVID? COVID, what's that? <laughs> uh, there was there was a time last year I was determined not to say Trump nor coronavirus in in any broadcast and didn't go on for long because they they were just so all consuming stories. And coronavirus, sadly, has continued to be and, you know, robbed so many lives and livelihoods and continues to affect us on a, a daily basis. Um, so it's a strange thing for us in the news world because there are more people at home in lockdown watching the news, but you don't want to be talking about coronavirus every day. You know, the, the, the rates of, of, of depression due to the isolation of covid isolation are massive and, and they're having an effect on us which is you know why doing something with you is is such a great project because i know that there'll be people listening into this today and this might be their their uh their window to the world for today so you want to make sure that we're not focused just on that 
Do you have a, a catchphrase that you sign off with every night? What's 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 the way in which you uh, you say how you start or end your bulletin? Well, Pete, I know that you've you know done some self devised work as well, so I'm going to tell you what it is <laughs> at the moment. But I'd love to get your input as to what you think it could be if we were to improve it. It literally is, uh, and that's how we saw your news insert date. Um, thanks for your company. And it usually talks about the area that you're in because I'm presenting seven different newses, seven different bulletins across uh, Victoria and New South Wales and the ACT every day. So it might be, um, and that's how we saw your news uh, this uh, August 21. Thank you very much for your company. Looking forward to seeing you tomorrow night. So that's how we saw your news because news is such a, a personal perspective. What you're seeing in the world is not what I'm seeing. We are seeing it through the lens that we have. So that's why I say that's how we saw your news. Got any improvements for me? Yeah, you could just say, um, and, and be good to your mum. Yeah, and that's always something that we, we must be, is good to mum. Absolutely. And where did you grow up in? Well, I'm gonna, <laughs> it's silly to pretend that I don't know you, but I know you grew up in Ballarat in Victoria. Yes. So we're both boys of the goldfields um, and we grew up in a, a pretty easy and fun time uh, in regional Victoria because it was, uh, you know, the 70s and 80s was such a beautiful time to be alive. The, the freedoms, there was no internet. You had the emergence of personal culture, which therefore, you know, you and I were, were uh, devotees to going along to the, the DVD store or the VHS store as it was in those days and, you know, there was that sense of individual freedom that you got rather than just post-war years where there was only one way and it was this way. We started to see those personal liberties and because there was no social media, you didn't feel bound by uh, so much of the criticism you see this younger generation going through. The CD store, I think, was Brashes. Remember Brashes right on Mr. B? Brashes, both of my sisters worked in Brashes in Bridge Street, in Burks, Bridge Street Mall, not Bridge Street, Street Mall. Um, and uh, they, uh, Bridge Street, yeah. And to this day, I follow Brashes on Twitter, which comes up very funnily with um, a whole lot of ironic tweets, which is, you know, about uh, don't forget to get down to Brashes and pick up your uh, Cliff Richard cassette. $4.99 this weekend. Is that a, a, a nostalgia page, is it? I think it's just a, an ironic page. But my first, actually, it's funny I mentioned Cliff Richard because I was just digging back into, you know, um, the memories. Is My first ever album was Cliff Richard, um, the first one that I bought myself. And uh, I remember getting on the, the, the bike to drive to ride down to um to Target in Ballarat to pick up my Cliff Richard album, which was wired for sound. I wonder what year that was released. Um, and I went down and picked it up. Of course, it was vinyl, and I put it onto the back of my bike, which was the bike rack, and put the octo um strip over the top to make sure that it didn't fall off. Riding home, it must have been about uh, thirty degrees, and by the time I got home, I was left with this. Um, concave pancake, <laughs> put it on the turntable, and it was a what kind of rattle hand farmers? You can set in my pocket, I'm stereo. That was my first ever album. <laughs> now, your, your family are very sports orientated. Uh, what were the artistic influences in your childhood growing up? Did you go to the theater or big cinema family? Yeah, we we loved the cinema and, of course, firm friends with the Hobson family growing up. So um, to me, they weren't Mr. and Mrs. Hobson. They were always Uncle Phil and Auntie Kate. And we spent so much time together doing artistic pursuits from, you know, going and see Uncle Phil um, just play these amazing characters. The best, the best uh, Professor Higgins and the best Fagan I've ever seen would be Uncle Phil Hobson. He was an amazing performer. Um, and I remember when he had a big break to raise family um, when I'm, I'm guessing the older kids probably must have been in their teen years. And then he came back when Fiona and I, who are the same age, Fiona is the, the youngest of the, the Hobson siblings, and he came back and did, oh, God, what was it? It was, I hadn't seen him on years. I'm trying to remember what it was, Pete. It was like 
not thoroughly modern, Millie. No, 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 Ned. It was one of those big American things. And he was, I remember just sitting there and I'd seen him as a kid and he was just so engaging. And then saw him on stage again when I was in my teenage years. I went, oh, my God, there's that magic back again. I suggest it was probably Hello, Dolly in 1984. You have nailed it. That's what it was. How did you remember that? Because that was, that was the first show that I saw in Ballarat, actually. Um, I, yeah. was, I was living in Maribyrnong where I grew up at that stage, but I came over to see a matinee one day and that was the first time that uh, I clapped eyes on Phil and a whole lot of other Ballarat performers who would have become colleagues and, and, and great mates. Um, and I had the, the great fortune to work with Phil and to the listener. We're talking about the, the, the dad of David Hobson, the, the, the great opera star and vocalist, um, to work with Phil in the production of Noises Off. That that brilliant comic farce, and yes, uh, he was such a, sw- doing that. a sweetheart of a man and a very very funny performer. Oh, and, and this, this, the thing that would always because he and Dad were such great mates. Uh, Uncle Phil would be he would be one of the best storytellers that I've ever known, and he just would captivate you. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't matter if it was a, a Sunday afternoon sitting around the dinner table after having a shared family lunch or if it was just literally standing around, you know, at the football talking. He was just captivating in terms of the way that he would draw you into a story and the characters he would portray. What sort of kid were you, Bruce? Describe for me yourself as a child. Were you uh, the class clown, sporty, introverted? I think you just... Still all three, so let's get the next question. <laughs> yes. How can you be introverted uh, and a class clown? Oh, I think that's that dynamic that you have as a performer is that you sometimes don't know how to communicate. So, therefore, when you do extrovert, you do it as a clown to attract attention. You know, you, you sing the loudest on the back of the football bus on the team trip home, you, but you might not be the best listener. Um, because you are trying to make up for the deficit that you see in that um, the culture that you think you're inducted into as a young Aussie male. So, no, a little introverted. Um, my MBTI type always t- turns out to be an introver- introverted rather than extroverted. Um, definitely very sporty. Um, it doesn't take long to Google, but there is a classic photograph of me uh, with the rest of my family. If you Google the running Roberts and there's a picture of uh, me standing there with my dad and my siblings all dressed now, Ballarat Harriers outfits at Lake Wendaree. And uh, yeah, that was, that was, we literally spent the entire weekend doing sport. So all that happened. Uh, Class clown would definitely get that feedback from uh, teachers would go into my reports. And I think that was just that desire to, to perform. Did your dad still run because uh, he was competing in the Masters Games and and all sorts of things, wasn't he? Yeah, held some world records, which was outstanding. Uh, Dad's knees these days at the age of uh, 80, what is he, 87, sadly completely shot, but he still does five kilometres of of fast walking every morning and you've really got to keep up with him still to this day. The um, arts opportunities for arts expression at school, uh, were they many? Uh, were you part of a music ensembles or drama clubs, productions? No, we didn't really. The thing that we did have, there were, there were two things. That every year there was a musical and uh, I was never, the, the biggest role I ever got to play in the musical was uh, I was once dressed up as a gendarme in... Gosh, you're going to be able to have to help me out here again. It was one of those musicals where it was, um, that would come to me. Anyway, the, bo- the I boyfriend. Was Jean, Jean. Oh, see, how do you know this stuff? Have well, you done some research? Jean, no, no, I haven't. Gendarme, I thought French policeman. What's a French-themed musical? The Boyfriend. That was it. So I was the gendarme who blew a whistle and uh, I had lived my own line, which was a rite. <laughs> and that was the only line I had. Um, and of course, Graham Vendy, who many people would know from Six Tonight and his time up at BDV Six, as well as all of the work that he did in the Ballarat community, uh, was uh, the choir master and musical director at, at college where I went to school. And he was such a, a captivating person to be around and to work with. So, 
Uh, I didn't ever really get to do anything in the musicals because I was never good enough to sing, um, but uh, would always play a role. So I got to play a teddy bear once in whatever it was and the gendarme and the boyfriend. But no, much more oriented towards sport and football. I ask this of uh, all my Ballarat guests because I have a whole series of Ballarations uh, in the podcast, <laughs> seeing as I, I practically grew up there. But wh- what do you think it is about Ballarat that fosters such a vast amount of talent that have come out of that city? The wanderlust. If you were to think about literally the DNA of the people who established Ballarat uh, on Wathorong country um, back in the 1850s, is most of them were dreamers. They were sitting in places from, you know, Scotland to Hungary to California, all thinking about how could they make a living in the new world through seeking out gold. And so if you think about the optimism that those people had that they wanted to charge there and that community that's grown up around has been around the wanderlust of seeking a better life. And I, you know, I've lived in many cities across the world, but the Ballarat community to me remains one of, I would say it is the most connected community and the most optimistic and self-supporting community in any of that I've been involved in. Um, And I know that, you know, if there's a cause, Ballarat gets behind it. If there's someone who's struggling, Ballarat gets behind it. If there's an ambition that Ballarat has, Ballarat gets behind it. It is such a beautifully connected community. Did you always have um, career aspirations to be an actor? No, I thought I was going to be a journo. I thought I was going to be an actor. Um, I'd say that were the two things that I really hung on to when they're the two things I've done. I'm still surprised that I've had the the joy and success of doing them. Were your parents supportive of uh, career in in the arts uh, when you were going off to NIDA? Incredibly supportive. Uh, the the road was set by my eldest brother, who was told he said that he wanted to be a pilot from the very beginning of um, his sort of teenage years, and so he went off to university to do a year at Melbourne University studying science. But in the back of his mind, he always wanted to be a pilot. So he applied for the RAF and got in, and uh, was a really successful uh, not only pilot but also instructor. He was one of the rulettes. And so he'd already set the scene by the time when I was getting into my year 12 and I said, I think I want to do acting slash journalism or something in the creative field. And I'd come from a, um, from a medical family. And my dad said, uh, of course, he said, but I really want to make sure that you've got something behind you. And at that point in time, NIDA did not accept people who had just come straight from their year 12. So you had to go and do something. And his advice was go and study um, some something that's associated and relevant. And so I got into Melbourne University and was just doing arts and speak, picking out those, those subjects to therefore take on journalism. And it was so lucky at the end of that year to, to get into NIDA. So incredibly supportive. Uh, you know, they packed the trailer up and, and drove me up to, to live in Randwick uh, when I was, you know, the age of 19 to say goodbye. My mum's tears on the side of Anzac Parade is... She and Dad got back in the car and drove the empty trailer back to Ballarat. Did you enjoy NIDA? Wow, that's the longest pause, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenging place, but I think that's what the whole point of it is. It's that whole, you know, coming out of the chrysalis can't be an easy experience for a butterfly or a moth because you would emerge and you'd have, you know, damp wings that would be non-functional. The point of a chrysalis is the struggle makes you stronger. So NIDA, for me as an experience, was 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 tough. Um, there was so much, there was a lot of demand and there was a lot of self-reflection that potentially I was not mature enough to do at the time. Um, and I was fortunately surrounded by a great supportive year with some really quality people. Um, but it was a tough time. Yeah, I, I think uh, you ask anybody that's been to drama school and the response will be very similar to yours. Yeah, there, there are great times, but it's also a very confronting three years where you are learning a lot about yourself. I mean, you're going into the business of, of um, creating other personas and the, and the human condition. 
So, um, yeah, there's there's troughs and triumphs through drama school, I think. Mm. Uh, I still remember in the last year, Pete, we, neither or not a school does it these days, we would have uh, professional week or professional month. And Ken Healy was the history of theatre lecturer and, you know, this fantastic man, and he was basically put in charge of coordinating our our professional month. And he sat us down on the, the so the end of third year, you've basically done your graduation piece, uh, you've done the agent's audition day, and then then Ken sits us down as a, as a group of, I think we're about 18 left from the 27 that started. And he said, uh, okay, I just want to go through the statistics with you. And he said, uh, Half of you will never work as an actor, so don't expect to be working on uh, stage. What are we going to be expecting going and, and working and or attempting to work in this professional field? And you sort of, I remember just turning around and saying, could we not have had this discussion three years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you have a choice to sort of exit stage left. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one thing from what I've heard that NIDA is doing really well these days is there's a heavy dose of reality that comes with the creative and the aspirational goals. Um, I still look back on my time there and think that um, so many of the colleagues that I had from that time who've gone on to be successful have been really aware of how to, to promote themselves, about how to self-devise their work about making sure that uh, there is a component which is self-driven as opposed to be creative and see what happens. Uh, and I think that, you know, you've got to be so aware as a creative in Australia these days, you've got to have so many hats to wear to make yourself successful that you can't literally just say, stand back and say, yeah, I've got, um, you know, Shanahan's is my agent and I'm sure everything's going to be good which might have been something that you could potentially do in the 1970s. What were the plays that you were cutting your teeth on? At NIDA? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream, which was uh, we were all basically dressed in either uh, togas or potato sacks. That was uh, it's the only thing I can truly remember about that production. It was um, a, a very interesting one to to recall uh my love interest was the beautiful Jacqueline McKenzie so um we I can't remember who the, I think it was Lysander was the name of my character so there was that our graduation piece was Pravda um so that was uh, the the big piece that we graduated with rocking out to the new songs of Madonna so that's how long ago it was 1990 um yeah so and I can't remember loads about the actual productions we did the plow and the stars was our, our, our production which ended our first year which was a beautiful show to do set in ireland at the time of the uh the revolution yeah what was the uh, the first professional gig that you scored was that home and away or did you have some other yeah. gigs before then no, as well, I did as a, as a teenager. Uh, I used to appear in local commercials on BTV6 television, Pete. So, no, but the first post-graduation was is the, the, the week I mentioned before, which was the, the graduation or the professional week, is they used to bring in professional, uh, you know, casting agents or producers to actually do some pieces in front of them, get some direct feedback. And I was lucky enough that... Uh, we had the casting director for Home and Away come in and we all had to read scenes. And then a week later, I was asked to go and do the real read and managed to get a job before it even left NIDA. Myself and Miranda Otto were, were employed in professional week before we'd even left NIDA. What's it like, um, you know, because you were playing Nick Parrish for three years, I think, with, in Home and Away. What's it like to play a character over an extended period of time? you'd be dreaming if you're not playing yourself because you couldn't sustain that character for that amount of time because you, you just day to day, you end up just being yourself. You can't, you know, when you do a production for Nick Parsons wrote that beautiful piece, Hollow Ground, which uh, is about a, a priest who's accused of, of being a paedophile. And uh, I did that uh, on three occasions with John Clark, the former NIDA director, directing it and working with some amazing people. And you can do that for a, a sh short amount of time because it takes such an emotional toll on you as a person. 
if you were to take something like that as a role and try and do that across a three-year period, you'd end up in an asylum. So I think the, the people that you see on soap operas, the best people are the people who are just playing themselves. Now, the move to the UK, what, what brought that about? Was that um, to, to, to throw your hat in the ring and see how you'd go or did, did something else take you to the UK? I'd just say that was human nature, Pete. Um, the, the path of least resistance. So finished on on Home and Away, but I'd already had, I think it was two pantomimes over in England at Christmas period. So was going over for a three or a five-week period and, you know, the, 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 the ludicrous amounts of money they would throw at you to go and do pantomime. So, you know, you'd, you'd pay off your mortgage for a year in six or seven weeks from the work that you do. And so... I remember finishing up and I'd already got an offer and I just thought, I'm just going to go over. And so I was 25 and had the ability to do panto um, once a year and then go and do these amazing things. So um, there was a Shakespeare festival that was on at um, Ludlow Castle and went and did stuff like that, which just didn't pay very well. But you went and did these amazing things, went... um, uh, so did As You Like It, did Twelfth Night, um, you know, in these small little theatres and just was a creative. It was exceptional to have the chance to be able to to take a big commercial success and then go and do something for your artistic bones. Yes, it was, it was huge in the 90s, wasn't it, for, for Aussie soap stars to, to go and do the panto season in, in the UK. I remember travelling out to Richmond uh, to see you as Prince Charming in, in Cinderella one year. Yes, uh, I think I was always some version of Prince Charming. It didn't matter if you were called Prince John, Prince Charming or Prince Philip. Um, it was always the same version. But we got to perform in front of Royals at Richmond and also uh, Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall one day were sitting in the front row. So that was pretty cool to actually, uh, someone came back and said, uh, you know, at, at, at interval, oh, look, that's, that's uh, Mick Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall in the front row, and you go, oh, yeah, sure it is. And then going out and just looking at the audience and going, oh, yeah, that's them with their kids. Uh, the, the Panto experience also afforded you an opportunity to work with some some great uh, talents as well. I mean, in that production of Cinderella, I remember Lionel Blair as Buttons. Oh. I mean, he was a big UK star. And Carmen Silvera playing the fairy godmother. She was um, in Allo yeah. Allo. And, and an Australian actor who had long forged a career in the UK as one of the ugly stepsisters, Fred Evans. Yeah, and he had he was famous in England for the the Cadbury's commercial over there, which was about a young kid who knocked his ball over the uh, the backyard fence so many times, and eventually took a, a box of chocolates over. So Fred was known for that. So, um, so yeah, there was a, a great community commitment from these small communities, and you would often do the same show, but in a different city with a similar or the same cast from year to year. And so getting to work with those people was fantastic. I got to work with a great Tim Brooke Taylor while I was over in England with Lionel as well in a different production, which was a farce. Um, it runs in the family. We also had um, members, again, from the Aloha Low cast and that. Um, and, you know, working with Tim Brooke Taylor, could you ask for much more? Yeah, because you would have grown up like me with the goodies on uh, every night yeah. after school when you'd get home. Yeah. So, no, there were some amazing opportunities. So, um, you know, um, those, those Shakespeare things we're talking about as well is I was asked to go up and, and help um, do some monologues on stage at what was going to be the Northern Globe. There was this move at Scarborough to, to build a replica of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. And uh, I've driven up in the middle. And people, being an Aussie, they didn't quite understand we think of distances as nothing and they've gone on. I've just said, oh, how long's the, the trip up there? And uh, they've gone, oh, I think it's three hours. And I've gone, yeah. So I've jumped in the car, gone up, got up there and I got to go on stage and do a piece of Shakespeare with Dame Judy Dench. Like, how could you think, okay, I'll drive only three hours and that's a bit of a taxing thing. Maybe I'd drive for two days to go and do a piece of work with her. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I remember driving back in snow the next day to get back to do whatever I was doing. It might have been a TV piece or panto or something. But uh, the whole of the the highway was covered in snow. And I actually thought, oh, maybe this is why English people 
don't want to get in the car for three hours because the weather can change so quickly over there. It's perilous. You commence uh, sports broadcasting when you're in the UK as well. Um, was it difficult sort of to be yourself behind a microphone or did it come quite easily because of your great obsession with sport? It's a great question. I think there was a piece of time where I was trying to work out who I was when you were doing a piece to camera or you were behind a microphone. And I did think I had to put on a voice and a personality and the dawning of that over that time to where I am now when I'm in front of cameras, there's just no need. You just need to be yourself. Um, and I remember there was a um, Murray Walker who used to call the F1 Grand Prix and um, I was asked to go on and do a voiceover and uh, Murray had just walked out and it was using one of those things that you get to see the cricket commentators using where you hold this microphone and it encapsulates your entire mouth. And so I was doing this piece, uh, it was for a cricket show, and my producer at Sky said to me, what are you doing? And I said, I'm doing the piece. And she said, no, you're trying to be Murray Walker because you put this thing up to your mouth. I've just seen Murray Walker. And you're going, yes, and here we are down at uh, Swansea. It's a beautiful day for cricket. And all of a sudden you start to put on these personalities and you can't be a personality. Richie Bonneau was Richie Bonneau. Uh, and as much as we all love to say true for 22, that's Richie's thing because he was Richie. But as soon as you try and be Richie, as soon as you try and be Ray Martin, then you're not being authentic to yourself. So you are playing yourself. You're not playing a, um, a broadcast version of yourself. Oh, I think you're doing your best self. It's the grandma rule I like to, to talk about when we've got young journos coming in. If you go along to a family picnic and you know that you've got your siblings, you've got your kids, you've got aunts and uncles and you've got grandparents, you are the same person but you're different people to the people who are at the picnic. So with your siblings, you're a bit cheeky. You might swear or tell a bit of an off joke. With your parents, you're very respectful. Uh, with your kids, you're quite the authority figure. But with your grandparents, you are respectful you're polite, you're your best version of yourself. You're still yourself. So I don't think it's necessarily a mask. I think you're just being the best version of yourself. That's beautiful advice. I think I've never heard it explained so uh, precisely then. So, yeah, think, think you're with your grandma, be your best self. Yeah, That's what I'm yeah. And, and I still work with the AFL, Pete. So every year, the first year, players... Uh, the men and the women go through a program which is to induct them into how they should behave when they're in front of a microphone or a camera. And I do use that, that metaphor about who, who are you your best self with? And as a result of that, you can then understand, well, when I am my best self and I'm seeing my grandma, you know, mine of long past, but you never turned up with tomato sauce on your shirt. You always made sure that you were... You wouldn't necessarily be clean shaven, but you weren't going to be uncouth. So it, it seemed like, uh, you know, you, you could have achieved almost anything you wanted to in the UK, but you came back to Australia. Uh, was that homesickness? Yeah, and a broken heart. I was married over there and it was uh, not a happy marriage in the end, but I was determined uh, there were two things going on in 1998, which was the year I, I came home. The first one was the Olympics were about to happen and the second one was I was determined to vote in the referendum because I wanted to make sure that Australia was a republic. Um, I got to see the Olympics but I failed in my second cause. Uh, and I, I, it was interesting because having lived over in England for a long time, I actually think I became a more ardent Republican by living in England because of the way that Australians were perceived as colonials and you would be called a colonial you would be referred to as this second-class citizen because you're Australian. Um, I lived in this tiny little village when I was in England. There were only 18 cottages, and Bruce Coles, who is the grandson of G.J. Coles, was living over there, and he'd gone over to England at the same time um, as Geoffrey Robertson and had started a legal career, and at this point in time, he was a county judge. Um, and Bruce and I lived in the same village. We're both Australian, 18 people in the village and two Aussies both called Bruce. And he 
had grown such a he still had a thick skin about being australian but he had a thin skin about being an australian called bruce and he after living in england for what must have been 40 years by that point in time he would ban australian jokes because as much as when we're growing up jokes were told about irish people in australia is english people tell jokes about australians and so i was determined when I came home, that I didn't want to be part of England anymore. I wanted to make sure that we as Australians were standing up on our own two feet and we were, in our, we were our own identity that could actually have, you know, an Indigenous head of state that could make sure that we were driving towards our own sense of self-destiny. Bruce seems to be one of those quintessential Australian names. I mean, I, I think of the, the glorious film Finding Nemo and Barry Humphreys' voice as the shark called Bruce. We're having fish tonight. That's the one. Um, I still, I bumped into Bruce McAvaney about, oh, geez, maybe 10 years ago at an airport. And I went up and said, g'day, because in 1996, I think it was the centenary year of the, the VFL, AFL grand final, is uh, I was working for Sky Sports and I had. Liam Pickering and John Longmire come over as my special guests to what, to do the grand final. And they had a live cross from Melbourne to London, from Melbourne to LA, etc. And so I was the host sitting in the London studio for Sky. And so hum, half time comes and Bruce McAvaney is throwing to me and I'm throwing to Bruce McAvaney in Melbourne at the same time. And it was back in the days when the satellite used to bounce around literally the planet and so when you were doing one of those open links, there would be this horrendous echo in your ear that you would be going, um, Bruce McAvaney joins us now from Melbourne. And he's simultaneously saying, Bruce Roberts is hosting the broadcast for Space Guy B with John Longmire and Liam Pickering in, in London. And all of a sudden, both of us, both Bruce's, all we can hear is Bruce, 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 Bruce. And it literally was that bad. And it came out on air. We had phone calls into Sky Sports on the, the reception desk about, there's never anything more Australian than two blokes called Bruce who are speaking to each other from the other side of the planet. So we, we lived the Bruce moment. So I can see why Brucey Coles demanded that there were no Bruce and Australian jokes in his, uh, his vicinity. Now, Sam Carmichael in Mamma Mia, a, a joyous show, tell me about that because, you know, for, for the boy at, at, at school who... Um, was never cast in a musical, only as the the, the gendarme. Um, was that a, a frightful or a surprising experience that you found yourself centre stage in a big commercial musical? I never felt like I belonged. Uh, the three years that I did it, never felt I belonged. Felt like I was an imposter during the entire time. Um, there were people who were musically so much more talented than me and I didn't feel like I belonged. When I, when I first went along for the audition, I'd been told because um, our great mate Nick Eady had been in the role um, that uh, I had got some reassurance that Nick was not a singer, that it was more about being an acting role and realised very quickly that you can't be in a musical and be an actor. You've still got to be a musical. You've got to be you know, musical theatre performer. And I'm, I was not and I am not. I guess having done so much panto and you're always singing and that, and I can sing, but I'm not, I'm not going to be leading a Broadway show. So I had confidence that I could do it, but, gee, it was, it was demanding. Um, so, yeah, I always felt like I was an imposter. And, and I remember when the curtain came down in Melbourne, this, this sigh of relief going, I'm glad that's over. Had a lot of fun, saw a lot of amazing places and made some great friends. But in terms of the craft of musical theatre, that's someone else's business. Because uh, you didn't get to, weren't required to dance as much, I suppose, in that. But but it was a big sing, um, knowing me, knowing you. Yeah. And how does a bloke from Maribyrnong say dance? Don't we say dance if we're from the goldfields? Yes, they do. But I'm presenting my best self to grandma. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there was not a lot of dancing nor dancing. Uh, singing was <laughs> singing was fine, and you know um, we had uh, 
an, an awesome musical director. So Steve was uh, continually working with me behind the scenes. You know, I was working with people like John O'May. You couldn't ask for greater support for someone in the musical theatre world than John O'May. Just a beautiful man and has got so much history and so much talent. And uh, he and uh, Peter Hardy were the other two dad characters. And, you know, John O was just amazing to me throughout that time, showing so much support. So, so when did the opportunity to move into news come about? You know, you're back in Australia, you're working as an actor, and all of a sudden you become a newsreader, a news presenter. Yeah. Well, when I came home from England, the continuation of, of just doing some more stuff in front of camera had already happened. So I'd already had the opportunity to go and do some work for Fox Sports. And I worked there about a week and I went, oh, gosh, I don't really want to be stuck in a studio doing this stuff again. Um, and uh, I put the feelers out to see if there were any other roles. And interestingly, um, BTV6, which had recently become part of the Win Network, so back in Ballarat for those people who don't know the old call sign, um, and uh, I put some feelers out and actually approached the news director and sent him my showreel, and he said, we're not looking for English people on regional Australian news at the moment. so didn't get the job. This is when Dennis Walter was still doing the role. Um, so uh, I jumped into going back to do some more media training and uh, using, you know, my media skills to to continue doing some uh, coaching and some advising. And then, yeah, as I said, the kids, I'd been flying around the, the country to do this sort of work for um, large organisations, political parties and that sort of thing. And Maya, who is now uh, 15, was probably, I think she would have been about 18 months and she developed the phobia of yellow cars because any time she saw a yellow car, she thought it was a taxi taking her dad away to the airport. Uh. And Rowan, yeah, Rowan had enough because our girls are Irish twins. They're only 13 months apart. And uh, Rowan was, and I, you know, there were weeks where I would be working every day of the week but not be working in Melbourne. And... So she'd had, Road had enough and I felt terrible. And the role came up because Dennis was uh, resigning from Wynn and I thought, look, this is a golden opportunity. Row is from Leanne Gaffer, so she's a country girl, uh, to make the move. And so I put my hand up and was very lucky to be selected from the, I think, hundreds of people who put their hand up to go and replace Dennis. Right place, right time. I mean, I, yeah, I grew up with yeah. BDB6 and the news and, you know, I, I think of Arthur Scuffins and Craig Campbell, you know, who all presented the news. So you fall into uh, a great line of, of news readers. Yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur Scuffins, interestingly, was one of my teachers at school. Um, so felt that real connection. And I still have a piece of advice, which I, because there's, in the studio world, we have to take eye lines to certain things, although people might not necessarily be there. And so there's this one wall where if I'm having to look at a guest who's not actually there and then when it's cut together later, it does look like I'm there. There is one wall where I've still got to this day a piece of Arthur Scuffins. It's a whole A4 page on how to use apostrophes. And it's there for uh, anyone who needs to reflect on that, including journalists who just joined. <laughs> So how many, uh, your day, what, what does that consist of? It depends what it is. So yesterday um, was just a regular Friday. So I was in the door at Wynn at 9.30, wrote uh, a voiceover piece, which is 30 seconds, and then wrote a pack, which is a one-minute 30 pack. Um, then so that's, you know, sourcing the interviews, putting together the, the paper edit where you're actually writing the script, um, duck home for lunch because that's still really important to me. And one of the things I love about still living in a regional town is you can duck home for lunch. Um, and then back into the studio and presenting seven bulletins of news across the afternoon. Um, and what you're doing is continually like the emerging situation um, in regional Victoria at the moment with the Delta strain of COVID is you might end up having to have a few bites at the cherry as to what is the lead story. You know, we saw that escalating case in Shepparton that it was one case um, of coronavirus at uh, 11 o'clock and then it was six at four o'clock and then all of a sudden it was 12 by the time we actually got to air. So you might look at 
the fact that you're doing seven users simultaneously, but you're producing the content, which is more about, you know, one of the pieces I wrote yesterday was about the RSPCA having, um, do you know your pet well? And nothing's going to change for that uh, census piece, which is about, you know, common dog names, breeds, etc. That's nothing's going to change in that from when I wrote that at 9.30 yesterday morning to when it airs at 5.30 at night. So that's not going to change. The sports piece I did was on Alistair Clarkson, uh, who's a conniver boy, um, hanging up the boots at, at Hawthorne. So that's not going to change too much from about 1.30 on, unless it was David Teague, who was also in it, is uh, booted out from Carlton. So you've got uh, a whole series of different moving bricks to make what is the wall of your, your news piece but you know the ones down the bottom are not going to be moved, whereas the ones up the top in terms of the late-breaking news, you're continually having to be aware that you might need to get the mortar out and whack that new brick in. Yeah. And what, what do you enjoy most about the gig, the role that you have presenting the news? Keeping the community up to date and being a part of the community. Uh, I just, I, it's a critical role because news consumed on the television is something that isn't for an, an older generation enjoys. You know, you're not going to get someone who's 25 thinking, I'm going to sit down and watch the news now, as you and I did when we were 25. It comes through their mobile phone, they'll watch news stories on Facebook. I still love the craft, the fact that for half an hour, you're going to have someone who is sitting at home. Uh, and they may be making their dinner and then sitting down to watch the sports break, but they've spent that entire time with you. So I still love the journey of the news. I love the fact that you, as I said to you earlier on, that you might have the, the, the crucial late-breaking story about a health emergency at the top of the bulletin, but you know by the end of it you're going to be doing a great story, which is about, the 13-year-old who saved her mum in a car, in a car crash and calling triple zero and played a role, or it might be the fact that, you know, you've got to a really strong, important community piece about a business that's doing fantastic things or raising funds. And I, look, I know it's a cliche too, but you, but you are almost part of the part of the family. You're a fixture in the in the household every night. So people look forward to um, the, the security and the comfort of being told what's what's news by Bruce or Juanita or Jeremy, you know, which I look yeah. forward to every night in Sydney. Yeah, of course. And I think that's, that is, there's a reliance that therefore if these words are coming out of that bloke's mouth, I can trust this and I should be reassured by it. Um, and it's interesting, Pete, my mum, I know that you and I have spoken about this off mic, but my mum is uh, on a, a journey with dementia at the moment and she still is reassured by the fact that I might not be in the room in Ballarat with her, but she is reassured by the fact that I am spending that time with her. So that is an extreme case of that, that presence that's still so vitally important. Um, to the point where sometimes she'll say to dad, oh, I think he's in the bathroom and dad will say, what? And uh, I have been in the house by being on the television so much that therefore I've just gone off to use the bathroom and I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> and, look, and look, even recently too, with the, the passing of the great Brian Henderson, the, the outpouring of affection and love for, for that man who was uh, such a fixture in households for over a couple of decades. It was extraordinary. Oh. Yeah, and the same with Brian Naylor in Melbourne when Brian and his wife passed away in the Black Summer, Black Saturday fires. Just the tragedy of it is, is that we were so keenly felt because they were part of your lives. And I think that was when Brian Henderson retired, that was part of his speech. He said, you know, it's good night for me and sadly this is the last time I'm going to be in your living room. Yeah. Well, I look forward to going home and seeing, well, seeing my mum, but also the opportunity to tune in at um, 6 or 6.30, whatever it is, every night. 5.30 now. 5.30. I always tune in and see my mate Bruce uh, delivering the news. So may you uh, age gracefully over many decades. I look forward to to observing that uh, (laughs) as you impart the news to uh, your loyal listeners. Peter, thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure. And... You know, I don't know if you get thanks and you can cut this bit out if you want to, but I want to say it is what you're doing for the artistic community to make sure that these tributes and stories are told is bloody awesome because 
we, if you think about the old-fashioned newspaper, the arts insert was, you know, often buried about halfway in. It was just one page and you had your, all your news and all your sport and the arts didn't get a lot of attention. Graham Vendy once said to me, my ambition for you is to make sure that when you're reading the news, every story is about the arts. So there's not a lot of love that happens, but I'm so grateful that you are sharing the love and spending time making sure that you're telling the stories with love. So please keep doing it. Oh, thanks, Brew. I'm certainly going to leave that in. Um, it makes me happy. It makes me dance. What you just said. <laughs> it's making me dance this end as well, mate. Thanks, Brew. My pleasure. Thank you, Pete. If you are spending time in a regional area, be sure to tune in to Win TV and be informed by Bruce's nightly read of the news. Thanks to my guest today, journalist and newsreader Bruce Roberts. I know you've been enthralled by this conversation, just like the way you've been delighted by those listened to earlier. So why not give the podcast a review and rating? You can do so by scrolling to the bottom of the episode page in the iTunes podcast directory. You have a choice of five stars. I'll say that again, five stars and an opportunity to leave a brief comment. We'd really appreciate it because it helps the podcast reach a much wider listening audience. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.